Good morning, everyone. If you'll stand with your hymnals, please. 165. 165 in your hymnals. something that obviously about the time I came into this world uh, was winding down but I've learned a lot about it I've worked with several veterans that was in the Vietnam War and as I read over this plaque it really touched my heart and I think it will yours too but I'd like to ask at this time if all of our veterans would stand while I read this plaque please you would please remain standing while I read this. The title of it is The Vietnam Veteran. (laughs) 
to those who return home with no one to greet them, to those who have been told PTSD will go away in time, to those who have never been told thank you or officially welcomed home, to those who return physically but still are haunted by the nightmares of war, to those who still react to the backfire and a break of sweat at the sound of a chopper, to those who have traveled endlessly, never letting roots take hold or settling down, to those who hear a familiar song that takes you back to a place you'd rather forget, to those who can count the friends they have on one hand for fear of losing another. To those who suffer from Agent Orange exposure and are still fighting the last battle. To those who fought battles in steaming jungles of Vietnam and also here at home. To those who have friends on the Vietnam Memorial Wall more friends, excuse me, to those who have more friends on the Vietnam Memorial Wall than they do in this life, we welcome you home. Thank you. At this time, we've got some special things going on today. Uh, Phil's got the morning off, and uh, I will ask him to come and ask the prayer, and after that, Joe Carter is going to speak to us on uh, Organ Donor Awareness Day. Phil. Let's pray together. God of grace and mercy, we come before you this morning with grateful hearts. mindful of all the ways in which we are indebted to you. We give you thanks for our very life, our very breath. <coughs> Forgive us for so easily taking daily life for granted. We give you thanks for a measure of health that makes it possible for us to be here this day to gather together to be reminded of your goodness to us to reminded to be reminded who you've called us to be we give you thanks for all the people who make our lives possible each day many whose names we know and many whose names we do not we are mindful this day of our veterans we give you thanks for their dedication and devotion. Give you thanks for their sacrifices. Pray your continued presence to and with them. We give you thanks as well for the new life that we have in you. And as we are mindful this day about the ways that we can continue to give life even after we die. We ask that we might 
uh, listen carefully and consider carefully about how we might give and pass on the life that you've given to us. We give you thanks for Joe and for his story and pray that we might uh, be filled with gratitude and wonder and conviction as we ponder these matters this day. Be with those in our midst who continue to struggle, continue to face so much uh, grief, those who struggle physically, those whose spirits are at the edge of despair. We pray your Holy Spirit upon them and may we be an encouragement to them. We pray all of this through Christ. Amen. 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 <laughs> I apologize. One, one thing that I did uh, skip this morning, and I'll take a second to touch on it. As the offering basket goes around, remember that's for our Christmas gifts that we are giving out in the different ministries that this class caters to. Um, we are currently about a third where we are normally at at this time of year. Uh, November has proved to be a very good month for that uh, uh, money's coming in. So dig deep this morning and contribute and uh, be prayerful about the rest of the month. Uh, and uh, we thank you for your contributions that you're making. Joe. I'm not used to a microphone in front of my face, but <laughs> I want to thank Phil for graciously allowing me to take this Sunday to talk about organ <coughs> tissue donation and to share my story with the class. Um, if you've read your newsletter and uh, seen in the bulletins, today is National Donor Sabbath. Donor Sabbath occurs annually the second weekend before Thanksgiving. The purpose is to increase awareness of the need for organ and tissue donation among the communities of faith. It's a three-day event, so it covers all major religions, and all the major religions do support and encourage organ and tissue donation. Uh, they look at it as the greatest, most selfless gift a person can give. Uh, I mean, you're literally giving the gift of life to someone. Um, I don't know if all of you are aware of it or not. Well, well wait a minute. There's, it's also not only a way of uh, um, promoting the need, but it's also a way of honoring those that have given that gift, and it's a way of celebrating the lives of those who have received that gift. And I don't know if all of you are aware of it or not, but uh, Muncie has three members that have received that precious gift. Uh, Jeff Clements received a heart 14 years ago. Jeff was a senior in college and only 23 years old at the time. John Holbrook um, received a liver nine years ago. John is, of course, an orthopedic surgeon and was able to return to his medical practice after the transplant. And as most in the class know, uh, I received a liver a little over three years ago. The three of us would not be here today were it not for our donors. Um, this morning, or today, there are 116,592 people on the National Transplant Waiting List. 
one person is added to the list every 10 minutes. Uh, unfortunately, 18 to 20 people on the list die daily due to the shortage of organs. Uh, there has been an encouraging trend over the past uh, few years in that more and more transplants are being performed each year. In fact, a record for the highest number of transplants ever performed in one year was actually set last year, 2016. Now, out of the 116,592 on the waiting list, anybody want to uh, venture a guess as to how many actually received a life-saving transplant? 33,600. And I'm happy to say that my good friend and fellow volunteer with Donate Life, John Casso, was one of those. Uh, John received a liver in May of last year after being on the waiting list for 11 years. Oh. <laughs> um, if you look at it one way, the 33,600 is an encouraging number. I mean, it was the most ever performed in one year. If you're one of the 116,000 on the waiting list and you look at that and you think only 28% actually received this transplant, then it's, it's not a... It's not a, uh, an encouraging statistic. The, um, <clears throat> as the, I lost my train of thought, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm a little intimidated up here <laughs> in front of this class. But uh, um, over 95% of Americans claim that they believe in and support organ and tissue donation. Only 54% are actually registered to be organ and tissue donors. <coughs> And in Washington <coughs> County, uh, that number is only 40%. So if the majority of people um, believe in and support organ donation, what do you think is the number one reason that people or more people don't sign up? Anybody want to venture a guess? Just because they just don't get around to it. Yeah, they don't think about it. I mean, unless you know someone that is needed to transplant, then you rarely think about it organ and tissue donation. I mean, it's not something that comes up in everyday conversation. And in fact, the, probably the only place you're ever going to be asked if you want to be an organ and tissue donor is when you renew your driver's license at the DMV. And uh, of course, that only happens once every five years. And you're usually waiting in line and frustrated and thinking about being an organ donor is the last thing on your mind. Now, there are a lot of other reasons that people give for being for not being, for not signing up. Most of these are based on myths and misconceptions. Um, for instance, some people think that if you're, if you are registered and you're in, involved in an accident or you're in a hospital because of a medical emergency, the doctors aren't going to work as hard to save your life as they would someone not signed up. <laughs> and that's not true. Uh, the doctors aren't even going to know if you're an organ and tissue donor at that time. And uh, that, question or discussion is only going to come up if and when you're declared brain dead. Other people think that you can't have a uh, open casket funeral if you're an organ and tissue donor. And that's not true. I mean, how many of you have ever viewed a body that uh, was not fully closed with their <laughs> eyes shut? There's no way you're going to be able to tell if someone's an organ and tissue donor by viewing their body. And I can assure you that the ones that procure the organs and the tissue are going to treat your body with the utmost respect and dignity. Um, 
then there are still few that claim that it's against their religion, even though all major religions do support and encourage organ tissue donation. In fact, uh, just last month at the Emoja Festival, we had a, uh, a booth set up, and uh, a guy that I'd known for several years came by. I knew him work-related, and uh, we hadn't we'd lost contact, so he didn't know anything what had happened to me or anything. So he asked me why I was there, and I told him I was donating, or I was volunteering for Donate Life, and I told him what we did. And I asked him, I said, are you an organ and tissue donor? He said, uh, no, no, he says, it's against my religion. So I thought, well, uh, I knew he had been born in Turkey, uh, but he had been in the United States for probably at least 20 years, maybe 30. So I thought, well, maybe there's a religion in Turkey that I'd <laughs> that doesn't support him. So I asked him, uh, well, what religion do you belong to? He said he had his own religion. That, <laughs> that he, he believed in all of them. And that way, he thought that one of them had to be right. And by believing in all of them, he was assured a place in paradise and that uh, he might need his body intact when that time came. So, now, the next two reasons are probably going to hit a little closer to home. Uh, some people think, or a lot of people think, that they can't be an organ and tissue donor because they're diabetic or they've uh, got some other chronic illness. Now, the fact is there are very few medical conditions that would prevent you from being an organ and tissue donor. And, uh, and that's only going to be determined at the time of death. And the last one uh, may hit even closer to home, especially in this class. I'm not implying anything, but, <laughs> but uh, a lot of people think they're too old to sign up to be an organ and tissue donor. Uh, they claim their organs are worn out. <laughs> the oldest organ donor was just days shy of his 93rd birthday. His liver went to a 69-year-old woman who is alive today thanks to his gift. This just happened a few years ago and the donor was actually from West Virginia. The oldest eye and tissue donor was 107. So any age is the age to sign up. And uh, you can sign up in several different ways. Uh, like uh, most people, in fact, 98% of those that are registered have done so at the DMV. Uh, you can sign up at the DMV when you renew your license. You can actually sign the back of your license. There's a, there's a place on the back that you can sign indicating you want to be an organ donor. You can sign up online at donatelifetn.org. Or if you decide you want to today, we can sign you up. We've got uh, two tables set up, one near the CLC and one near the connection point. Um, all you do is sign a form. We'll um, take a photo of your driver's license and take it from there. Um, now, if you're not, if you think you've signed up before in the past and you're not sure if you're registered, uh, Liz came by to register and she was already an organ donor. <laughs> if, you'll take the, if you look at your license on the very front of the license, if you are registered to be an organ donor, there will be a little red heart signifying that you are registered to be an organ and tissue donor. So, uh, so we encourage you today, uh, since it's National Donor Sabbath, to at least, uh, at least uh, consider being one if you're not. 
Now I'm going to share my story with the class. Uh, as most of you are aware, uh, you followed along uh, during my during the illness and the and the transplant, and uh, this class played an important role in my in my journey and in my recovery, and I'll get into that a little later, but um, after I tell my story, I'll answer any questions that you might have again about organ and tissue donation or even about my uh, personal journey. But uh, my journey began 16 years ago. In 2001, I was diagnosed with cirrhosis. Now, probably a lot of you didn't know that because we didn't share that with a lot of people at the time. There's a stigma attached to cirrhosis. I mean, what was the first thing that came to mind when I told you I'd been diagnosed with cirrhosis? Alcohol, Alcohol abuse. Alcohol abuse is the leading cause of cirrhosis, but uh, that wasn't the case in my situation. The year prior to being diagnosed, I developed a heart arrhythmia called atrial fibrillation. AFib, as it's usually called, is a fairly common heart arrhythmia, and it's usually <coughs> easily treated with medication or uh, electroconversion. Uh, I know some of you have AFib. Um, mine turned out to be a rather stubborn case, and uh, after trying several different medications, in fact, I remember one time I was in the hospital for two weeks while they were trying different medications, uh, a cardiologist sent me to the Medical College of Virginia, um, they were doing a, uh, a new ablation procedure for AFib at that time. Well, that didn't work. Uh, so when I got back, my cardiologist finally put in a pacemaker and placed me on a rather high dosage of a medication called amiodarone. One of the side effects of amiodarone, although it was very rare, was that it could cause liver damage. Uh, I don't know what the exact odds of it doing so were. Say it's one in 100,000. Could have been one in 500,000. Uh, unfortunately, I was the one. Uh, they took me off of amiodarone, they did a liver biopsy, and it confirmed that I did indeed have cirrhosis. Now, when I first got the diagnosis, I really wasn't that concerned. Um, I had no symptoms that I knew of. Um, I didn't feel well at the time, but I attributed that to the AFib. Um, and my primary care physician didn't seem that concerned. He told me that I, since they had found the cause of the cirrhosis and had removed that, that I could live for 10, 20, maybe 30 years without developing any of the serious complications of the disease. Well, as the years went by, I started developing a lot of the symptoms of cirrhosis. First developed what's called portal hypertension. Uh, it's an increased pressure in the portal vein of the liver that caused my spleen to enlarge, and, which resulted in a very low platelet count. And then about um, five or six years into the disease, I developed varices. Now, when I developed varices, uh, doctors became quite a bit more concerned. Varices are thin walled veins that develop in the esophagus and upper stomach. There's a significant risk that these can rupture, resulting in a major, sometimes fatal bleed. And I was doubly at risk for bleeding, uh, not only because of the low platelet count, but I was also still on AFib. I mean, I was still on uh, blood thinning medication due to the AFib. Uh, let me go back to the AFib for just a second. Um, none of the medications work, none of the procedures work, so we finally got a second opinion, and they did what's called an AV node ablation. Uh, the AV node is the electrical 
connection between the heart's upper chambers and lower chambers. Um, that left me pacemaker dependent. I've got no heartbeat of my own, and I still have AFib, but I no longer have any symptoms. So that's what happened to the AFib. Well, the varices, by this time, my local gastroenterologist had already sent me to Vanderbilt. He said that he wanted me to get to know the doctors there and for them to get to know me in case he ever had to send me to Vanderbilt in an emergency situation, such as a variceal bleed. Well, there is a treatment for varices. It's called banding. And uh, like the name implies, they take what I've always imagined to be a sophisticated rubber band, uh, wrap it around the varices. And <laughs> Dr. Barry probably knows what it looks like. <laughs> it's probably not a sophisticated rubber band, but... <laughs> but anyway, that's what I pictured. Uh, in a few days, the varices fall off, uh, scar tissue forms, and then no other varices can form in that area where there's scar tissue. I only had to go to Vanderbilt once a year to have these tested and banded when necessary, so it's still no big deal. Life was still good, and I went on about living my life with very little thought to the disease. Well, the liver's an amazing organ. Uh, doctors also told me that I could live a fairly normal life with only 10% liver function. They did say if I ever dropped below 10%, I'd be in serious trouble, but um, I, thought, I thought that was great. I thought I had a long, long way to go before I ever reached 10%. <coughs> well, I dropped below 10% in January of 2014. I became quite ill, and uh, because of the insurance at that time, I was hospitalized at Holston Valley Medical Center in Kingsport. After running several tests in the hospital, the uh, gastroenterologist that was treating me uh, told me that I was now in end-stage liver disease and that the only hope I had would be a liver transplant. However, he went on to say that they had discovered that I had a blood clot in the portal vein of the liver. And because of this blood clot, he didn't think I'd be a candidate for a transplant. He told me that he would consult with the doctors at Vanderbilt make me a point to see them, but when he discharged me from the hospital, uh, he gave us very, very little hope. Well, let me, telling it like that, it seems like it came on all of a sudden, but uh, for several months uh, prior, I knew something was wrong. Uh, as most of you know, uh, Kathy had breast cancer, so we always uh, participated in the Susan Coleman race for the cure. We were walking in the uh, 5K, and uh, I became so short of breath that I couldn't make it around the whole course. So I went to my primary care physician, and he couldn't figure out what was going on. He uh, sent me to the cardiologist. Uh, they did a lot of tests. In fact, I ended up having to have a heart cath. All that came back okay. So they sent me to the lung specialist. Uh, they couldn't find out what was going on. None of them connected any of this with the liver. Uh, they did put me on oxygen at that time, but when I was in the hospital, they also discovered that I'd developed ascites. Uh, ascites is an accumulation of fluid in your abdomen, and uh, they drained this fluid from my abdomen while I was in the hospital, and I immediately started breathing better. I think that it was probably pressing against the diaphragm, not allowing me to breathe properly. I um, also developed um, uh, hepatic encephalopathy. Uh, when the liver becomes so diseased that it can't remove all the toxins from the blood, they tend to accumulate in the brain and it results in anything from mild to 
severe confusion. Fortunately, mine was mild, but they did uh, take away all my driving privileges at that time. So, uh, but anyway, getting back to when he released me from the <coughs> hospital, um, like I said, he gave us very little hope. Well, two weeks later, we returned for a follow-up visit, and he still had not contacted Vanderbilt. Now, I don't know what he was really thinking, but to Kathy and I, it seemed that he truly believed that I wasn't a candidate for a transplant and thought that sending me to Vanderbilt was only going to give me a false sense of hope and basically be a waste of time. Well, when we got out of the doctor's office, Kathy was furious with the doctor. She said that it wasn't his decision as to whether or not I'd be able to have a transplant. So as soon as we got home, she called Vanderbilt herself. She explained the situation to them, and, and since I'd been seeing them on a yearly basis, they made an appointment for me to come down within the next week or so. After reviewing all the uh, results from the tests that were done in Holston Valley, the doctor at Vanderbilt told us that the blood clot did indeed complicate things, but it didn't necessarily prevent me from having a transplant. So uh, they made an appointment within the next several weeks for us to come back to be evaluated for a transplant. I don't know if any of you know of anybody that, or know of anybody that's ever been evaluated for a transplant, but it's a, it's a grueling three to four day affair. Um, of course, you have a lot of lab work. Um, counted 19 vials of blood they drew that first time. I had to have a, uh, and chest x-ray, I had to have a lung function test, I had to have an echocardiogram, I had to have a stress test, and I would probably have had to have a heart cath had I not just had one a few months previous. I had to have an endoscopy and a colonoscopy. And then the uh, thing that worried Kathy the most, thinking that I might not pass, um, had to be evaluated by a psychiatrist. <laughs> but anyway, I did, I did pass. <laughs> so I was placed on the waiting list and sent home to wait. Uh, I think if you ask any transplant recipient, they'll all tell you that the waiting is the hardest part of the whole process. I mean, your life is basically in limbo. There are no guarantees that they'll find an organ that is a match for you in time to save your life. Um, I only had to wait for four months, which is not a long time to be on the transplant list. Uh, those waiting for a kidney usually wait for two or three years. But it was the longest and hardest four months of my life. In May, I became uh, quite ill again. <coughs> this time I'd gone to my primary care physician's office, and while I was in his office, he called the doctor at Vanderbilt and they decided that I should be hospitalized at Vanderbilt. So we made the trip down late that evening and that night. Uh, Kathy had worked all day, she was tired. Fortunately, our daughter drove us down. Um, after spending a little over a week in the hospital, they had stabilized my condition and I was discharged on a late Monday afternoon. Uh, we came back to Johnson City on Tuesday and they told me I needed to have blood work done again at my primary care physician's office again on Friday, which I did. Friday night at about 9 o'clock, a uh, primary care physician called me at home and told me I needed to get to the emergency room as quick as possible. Okay. Well, I was shocked. I mean, I'd just gotten out of the hospital. We'd only been home for just a few days, and I was actually feeling better than I did before I went into the hospital. 
And plus, I'd already gone to bed, and I didn't want to get back out. <laughs> so I told him all this, and I asked him, you know, why do I need to go to the emergency room? He told me that my sodium level was dangerously low and that I needed to be hospitalized as quick as possible. So we went back to Holston Valley. The very next day, I was transported from Holston Valley back to Vanderbilt. During this hospital stay, it was decided that we should remain in the Nashville area until an organ became available. They told us that things were not going to get any better, things would only get worse, and that I might have to be hospitalized several times before a transplant actually took place. And they were right. Uh, things got worse. I went from being able to walk without assistance to having to use a walker, to being in a wheelchair, to being almost completely bedfast. Um, the ascites had gotten much worse. I was having to have the fluid drained uh, once a week, and they would drain anywhere from four to six liters each time. Uh, for those of you that don't think in terms of liters, everyone knows how much is in a two-liter soft drink bottle. Well, imagine two to three of those in your abdomen. I'd lost all my muscle mass. My arms and legs were like toothpicks, and uh, here I had this hugely bloated abdomen. Uh, you can imagine what I looked like. Well, I found myself back in the hospital uh, the week of the 4th of July. They had again stabilized my condition, and I was, uh, we were waiting in the room to be discharged when one of the transplant surgeons walked in and said that he thought they had a liver that was a match for me and that I would be spending at least one more night in the hospital while they checked everything out. Well, the next morning when the doctors came by, they told us that uh, the liver didn't work out. So I was discharged on July the 3rd. But the thing about it is, uh, all the doctors, all the nurses, everybody that was associated with my care during this hospital stay, they were all 100% convinced that I'd be back before the end of the weekend for a transplant. In fact, some of them thought I'd be back that very day. Uh, they thought this for two reasons. One, it was the 4th of July. Uh, 4th of July fell on a Friday. So it's a long weekend. People love to have fun on their holidays and long weekends. Unfortunately, a lot of accidents happen. So it's usually an extremely busy time for transplant teams. The second reason they thought this is because at this time I was number one on the waiting list. Uh, being number one on this list is both good and bad. It's good because you know that if an organ becomes available that is a match that you're going to get it. It's bad because being number one on this list also means you're the sickest person on the list and the one in most need of a transplant. Well, the 4th of July weekend came and went, and we did not receive a phone call. So by Monday, physically, uh, emotionally, spiritually, I was at the lowest point I've ever been. I mean, I thought my best chance of getting a transplant had just come and gone. And I didn't see how, in the condition I was in, that I was going to be able to hold on for much longer. I really thought I was going to be one of the 18 to 20 people that die daily waiting for a transplant. Uh, Kathy thought I'd given up hope. Uh, I hadn't given up hope, but uh, uh, I was almost completely bedfast by this time. Um, I could barely get out of bed to go to the bathroom and brush my teeth. And I did not want to get to the point 
that I was completely bedridden and had to depend on Kathy for everything. So uh, I, during all this time, I'd found it hard to pray. I mean, what do you pray for? Uh, I can't pray, Lord, I, I need a new liver. You know, can you please? <laughs> I mean, if I'd play that prayer, basically praying that someone die so that I could live. Um, but then I prayed a very selfish prayer at night. Um, Kathy was there by herself. Uh, our kids, of course, had family of their own, so they couldn't be down there. But every night I would pray that, uh, Lord, please take me home tonight. And I'd wake up the next morning and I would honestly be disappointed. And then my prayer would uh, be, Lord, you've got to give me the strength to make it through at least one more day. Well, this went on for almost two weeks. But on July the 17th, I received a new liver and a second chance at life. And surgery went well. I've had very few complications. And here I am today. And life is good. Uh, I can't say that I live every moment to the fullest, but I can tell you that I don't think there's anybody that loves my life more or appreciates life more than I now do. Um, in fact, I have moments and I never know when they're going to hit and I never know what's going to trigger them, but I have moments when I am uh, completely overcome with just a sense of pure joy, just the joy of being alive, the joy of being able to participate in and appreciate all that this life has to offer. And at the same time, I'm overcome with a tremendous sense of gratitude especially for my donor. Um, up, until, up until June of this year, I didn't know anything about my donor. I didn't know if it was male or female, young or old. Uh, and then uh, this past June, we had a follow-up appointment at Vanderbilt, and we visited the uh, offices of Tennessee Donor Services. They're the ones that handle the correspondence between recipients and donors. I wanted to make sure that uh, I'd written several letters to the donor family, but I hadn't heard anything in response. And uh, I wanted to make sure that they were at least getting those letters, which they were. And then uh, Kathy asked them if, um, if they couldn't at least tell us something about my donor. And uh, they did. They got back with us and said that he was a 26-year-old male. Now, I don't know what I was really expecting, but I really wasn't expecting that. And I think if you ask any um, recipients, they'll all tell you that uh, you do deal with uh, some guilt. Uh, I mean, you know, you ask yourself, you know, why was I spared and why was, why was he, why did he die at 26? He had his whole life ahead of him. But, um, but I think that uh, the best way to honor my donor and his family is to live my life to the fullest, to enjoy my life, and uh, and I've always, in all the letters that I've written to him, I always promise the donor family that I will live the rest of my life in such a way as to always honor the memory of, of their loved one. But um, now this class played an important role in my in my journey, and because every week while we were in Nashville we would get cards and notes uh, from this class. And 
until you're on the receiving end, you don't realize how much those do mean uh, to people. I remember Kathy uh, in the living area, between the living area and the kitchen of the apartment we were living in at the time, there was a wall and she would tape all the cards to the wall. And there were times when I'd be sitting in the living room and I'd, I'd want everything to be over with one way or the other. And I'd look at those cards and I'd think, uh, well, I can't give up. Uh, there are too many people praying for me, too many people concerned about me. Uh, I can't give up. And uh, so if you're, if you're one of the ones that send cards, keep doing so, because it does make a difference. And after I got back, um, I still had to uh, have blood work done once a week. I couldn't drive, but uh, someone in this class volunteered to, and I had to have the blood work done at Holston Valley. Someone in this class volunteered to take me back and forth each week. And when I tell you their names, you're not going to be surprised. Uh, it's Wayne Anderson. <laughs> oh, Wayne, a big debt of gratitude. Uh, I enjoyed those times because we talked back and forth, but, uh, but that was good times. But I really, he doesn't, I don't think he realizes how much he meant to me at that time. But that's my story. Um, if you got any questions, I'll be glad to try to answer them. Uh, I'll answer anything, any personal questions you have, because, <laughs> yeah. Have they noticed any increase in donors? The number of people donate. No. Uh, nationwide, that's 54%. Uh, like I said, here in Washington County, it's only 40%. So, uh, so there's not been really an increase. Kathy's got some brochures that she pass out. Like I said, you're, you're never too old to, to donate. And uh, even if they can't use your organs, uh, they can use your eyes and tissue to greatly enhance the lives of up to 50 other people. Um, I was asleep. I don't. <laughs> I think it was about. Was it six hours? About five hours. Um, I will tell you the the recovery is is hard. Uh, I mean, when I got home, I was still on a walker, and I could barely get out of a chair. But uh, I worked hard to. Uh, I worked hard to regain my strength, but it, it does probably takes over a year before you feel halfway normal. So, yeah. On liver transplants, what's the percentage of rejection? Uh, I don't know. Now, 85%, uh, they've got an 85% success rate for one year. So, for one year. Yeah, but if you make it through the first year, then usually you've got a pretty good chance of surviving. That, that first year, there's a, there's a big risk of rejection. But, uh, so you're on medication still? I am rejection? still on anti-rejection medication, and I'll be on that for the rest of my life. Um, they've lowered it a lot. When I first came home, I was taking 56 pills a day. Uh, I now take uh, eight pills a day. Uh, the only the only complication I have from the medication that I have now is my hands tremble, but that's nowhere near as bad as it was. And 
and I can live with that. <laughs> yeah. With more and more people being cremated now, is there any complications with that? Or? No, I mean, you can, like I said, you can have an open casket funeral, you can be cremated. They just uh, procure your organs and your uh, tissue first. So, yeah. No, I mean, being an organ daughter, you almost basically have to die in the hospital because you have to be on life support. So, uh, so no, it doesn't make a difference. I mean, they would take your organs and your tissues in. Yeah. You just, <clears throat> I think, answered my question. So, if, I mean, I think most of us would choose to die at home surrounded by our family on hospice. Right. If, I mean, I certainly would. If you die at home, then the time between harvesting the organs, and that, it, it's, is that a problem? To be, an, to be an organ donor, you have to be declared brain dead. Um, so um, that's a requirement for you. Now a tissue donor, you don't have to be. So you can probably die at home, still donate your tissue and your eyes. Yeah. If you uh, have the little heart on your driver's license, then and nothing else on the back is written, then they have full to take whatever. Yeah, you've already. Whatever. Yeah, you're in the national registry. To be well, honest, it don't. Yeah, yeah. Not usable. Listen, when you're in the position I was in, uh, you don't care how old the organ is. <laughs> it's Uh, if you have cancer. Uh, what about a patient with AIDS? No. I'm not sure. Do you know? I'm not sure about AIDS. Uh, I know there are, just a few years ago, the, the waiting list was 120-some thousand. And since they're doing more and more transplants each year, that's down to 116,000. But a lot of those have come from drug overdose. So, I don't know. So I know that some years back you've seen campaigns run on our advertisements of uh, organ donor awareness on TV. What's being done on a national level to reach mass numbers to bring awareness? <coughs> well, the uh, April is uh, Donate Life Month. So they usually run a um, they usually run media uh, advertisements during that month. But other than that, uh, <coughs> we uh, we as volunteers go with uh, they've got each uh, donate life. Tennessee Donor Services is what 
is part of what's called an OPO. It's an Oregon procurement organization. There's one in each state. Uh, they have what they call public education coordinators. So we go out into schools and we and we talk. Uh, we we present our story and all that to uh, other organizations like Rotary Club and, and all. But that's uh, basically the way they get it out. I don't know if any of you have seen it, but um, back in April, John Holbrook had a uh, professional video made. I don't know if any of you have ever seen that or not, but uh, uh, it probably air again uh, this April. Yeah. Uh, I think sometimes we have to be aware of knowing somebody personally yeah. uh, to want to be an organ donor. Right. Uh, that's when my cousin, who was very young, just 30 years old, uh, needed a kidney. Uh, I became aware of the struggles that she yeah. went through. Yeah. And I've been an organ donor ever since. Yeah. Like I said, that's the, gets close to home. Yeah. Like I said, that's the number one reason. We just don't think about it. What kind of match does it have to be? Well, you, of course, your blood type has to be the same. Uh, there's all kinds of, I don't know how many different tissue matches there are, but uh, it also has to be around the same size for your body. I mean... Uh, I couldn't. I couldn't have had a liver from someone that's 12 years old, and 100 pounds. You know. So. Yeah. There. For different organs, there are different times. I think for the heart, it's four to six hours. Uh, for the liver, I think it's 12 hours. Or uh, kidneys, I think, are even longer, 24 hours or 48 hours. So it depends on the organ. Tell me a story that uh, Billy Jarvis told the other day about 911. Uh, they were talking about the child in Texas. Oh. Uh, we just uh, just went to a high school uh, last Friday, and the uh, I went with the public education coordinator from Knoxville to speak, and he told the story that uh, on 9/11 um, they had a call. They had a they had a little um, I think it was a 10-month-old child that uh, had been killed in a car accident. The uh, donor was in or the recipient was in Texas. So they, they had their own planes. They were getting ready to fly the organ to Texas. When they got to the airport, they found out that 9-11 had happened. Um, all the flights were canceled. So uh, they had to call um, Texas and tell them that, you know, they couldn't get the organ to them in time. Well, the uh, and they asked them if they couldn't find another organ for the child. And they said, well, she's already been prepped for surgery. Uh, there's no way we can find another organ for her. So um, they, called, uh, they called the governor of Tennessee. They called Bill Frisk, who was uh, at that time. Uh, um, 
and none of them said that they could help. You know, that they, it was out of their hands that they, all flights were canceled. And then so they went back to the office and trying to decide what to do. And President Bush called them at the office and told them, he says, I understand you have a, a, a liver, it was a liver, that needs to be transported to Texas. And they said, yes, sir, we do. And uh, he says, well, I've got a plane on the way. He says, we'll pick it up and fly it to Texas. So they did. They made it in time. And at the 10th year anniversary, uh, they were all, they all got together and in walked this uh, uh, fifth grader, I think she was, brown hair and brown eyes. She was the recipient. So, so it, was, it was a good story. Any other questions? Well, I want to. I do want to thank Phil again for allowing me to take this time and thank you for being a captive audience. I was hoping that last week they weren't going to announce that I was going to be the speaker because I thought maybe there won't be many people here. So I appreciate it. Excellent job, Joe. And on that note, I was just panning around the room and looking. Take a moment and just look around. Just about all of us are here. And uh, it warmed my heart this morning to see everybody in their seats and around and see your smiling faces. Uh, it's good to have all of our family together. Uh, and especially to hear you share your testimony and what you and Kathy journeyed through. And I remembered it all too well um, as, as you were giving that, Joe. It was absolutely incredible. Um, we have some guests that are in, uh, some uh, old friends that have come back in, and I don't mean anything by that adjective that I put in front of it, but uh, uh, friends from long ago. Uh, I've kind of watched the chatter go around the room, and we have some guests here. Ron and Linda, would you like to introduce your guests, please? This is Chris Olmstead, and um, you all have, who have been in church in the last couple of weeks have heard our ministers asking us to invite unchurched people to come. So I met Chris when I was getting my nails done. <laughs> the last couple, the Smiths I met at Sam's. So I encourage all of you. She uh, is, has moved here from California to help care for her parents and she's very interested in helping out with a melting pot. So Excellent. never know, just ask. Well, and Boyce has one over here by the name of Steve. I'll let Boyce fully reintroduce you. Y'all know Steve is not unchurched. <laughs> Steve Dale, y'all, many of you remember, is a retired podiatrist here. Uh, he's begun coming to our church, has gotten very interested in our Thursday morning program and is a, uh, comes every Thursday, so uh, we're glad to have Steve. Welcome, Steve. And congratulations to Judy Ngala on her successful class that she has uh, taught. 
very uh, warmly received. I've heard all kinds of good things about that. Yes, Sandra. Can I make an announcement? Absolutely. If you say it very loud, 